listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi, welcome to episode 25 of uh, Right Where You're Sitting Now. I'm Kenny Kins. Um, joining me is uh, George Mortimer. I haven't had you on the show for a while, man. Yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were briefly in episode 23, actually, thinking about it. But uh, only... Uh, Richard Metzger thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who we're going to hopefully have back on the show soon. Um, right, so we've just launched a new music show um, for the guys at rlive.co.uk, which is rlve.co.uk, and we're going to throw a few episodes down the City Now feed to sort of generate interest for it. But I think eventually, I don't know, we might keep it on there, but we'll see. But uh, yeah, it's basically um, me and Daddy Tank, who does the MySpace Heroes that you hear in this show, um, doing our own music show, which is... Uh, centered around independent and underground music uh so yeah have a have a listen if you fancy hearing some horrible noise <laughs> um but uh, yeah uh, the competition someone actually got the answer i was really impressed uh, the, the competition question was who originally used the title right where, right where you're sitting now i still i should be able to say that after 25 episodes of this show really but anyway uh <laughs> the answer um was william burrows and uh i should have this on here as well but name of the person that won it is Marianne so well done um, we'll get the maybe logic DVD out to you um, yeah so upcoming guests we've actually got some really cool people coming up but um, I can announce now because we've confirmed it we've got a uh, Reverend Billy from the Church of Stop Shopping which is gonna be a really good interview <laughs> um, uh, he's gonna tell us all about the shopocalypse which should be quite cool and what would Jesus buy so yeah I mean check out his film it's really good um, and uh, yeah, we'll have him on the show soon. Also, we're having Douglas Rushkoff back on soon, um, uh, hopefully with Richard Metzer. But uh, I won't go too much into that right now until we've kind of fully <laughs> formulated the episode, as it were. We've got quite a cool idea for an episode, and uh, yeah, it should be good. But our guest today, Mortimer, was a suggestion by you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Jim Elbridge? Yeah, he's the um, author of a book called The Universe Solved. Um, basically the book goes into the sort of model and idea of us uh, that we might be living in a simulated reality um, dare I say a la Matrix style <laughs> <laughs> the film that I hate the most but there was a lot of good films came out about that as well at the time um, 13th Floor was always one that really appealed to me kind of more than the Matrix but yeah it goes into that kind of whole idea that we're living in a simulated reality and uh, the proofs behind it and, and whatnot. Yeah, and what's interesting about Jim's approach is that it's not from a kind of, um, I guess, a conspiratorial kind of standpoint, is it? It's from far more of a scientific... Uh... Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he seems to be, you know, well-grounded in the whole scientific uh, theories behind it all. And, you know, I think at one point in an interview, I kind of, you know, I asked him about the fact that, like, he must be the only scientist with the, you know, the whole concept of uh, intelligent design. You know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, he's, yeah, it's interesting. He almost makes religion seem feasible <laughs> in a kind of weird way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting interview. I mean, I've been interested in this kind of subject since, I guess, reading Philip K. Dick, actually. He kind of, uh, yes, very much the same for me as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those uh, things that if you think about too much, I think your head explodes. But it's uh, <laughs> interesting to think about for a while. Anyway, we'll cut to that interview now. Um, we don't have Claire again this week, although she assures me she's been writing the weekly weird news again for the site. But she assures me we'll be uh, back with her voice <laughs> um, in the in the coming weeks. So that's good. Um, but we'll play a few adverts, then we'll uh, we'll uh, go to the interview now. Eerie Radio, 
opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of kind of educating the public to understand what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. So, uh, Scott, I've, uh, I've kind of decided to become a superhero now. A superhero? Yeah, like, you know, like a full, um, like saving people, burning buildings, pretty ladies, stuff, you know, all that stuff, all that good stuff. Really? Well, what's your superhero name? Um, awesome Man. Wow. Uh, don't quit your day job. Hey, this is Scott. And this is Ben, and we're your hosts for Two Geeks, a Mike, and a Podcast. The show where we discuss all the latest news and rumors in the entertainment industry, all from a geek's perspective. The only perspective that matters. Join us on the web at geekshow.us. Where we come our friends at MySpace at myspace.com slash two geeks. Two geeks, a Mike, and a Podcast. We're here to save your day. So, um, could you give us a, a brief biography of yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I appreciate it, and uh, it's very uh, exciting to be on with you guys, oh, no uh, Ken and Warmer. Um, quick biography of me. Uh, basically, my, my background from an educational standpoint is engineering. Um, I was an electrical engineer. I got my degree from Cornell University uh, quite some time ago, back in the early uh, 80s. And... Um, you know, most of my career was spent uh, in the software realm. Um, I did a lot of software development, software management, uh, um, and so forth. Um, had some sort of entrepreneurial ventures over the years. Um, a lot of them related to music, uh, some startups, and so forth. And I've always also been interested in science and physics. Um, I would say probably more interested that in, in in physics than in my actual career. Um, I chose the career path more for practicality reasons, um, but I've always had a fascination with how things work, uh, both at a you know kind of a grand level from a cosmological standpoint, as well as you know you know peering into the atom and understanding quantum mechanics and uh, you know the you know the those kinds of things. So uh, in addition, um, I have done a lot of reading in some sort of uh, what you might term alternative theories on things. Um, I've uh, been interested in uh, any kind of outlook that differs from the scientific norm. So starting with, say, the 
uh, Everett interpretation of quantum mechanics, the you know parallel worlds theory, um, going into things that are more uh, fringe like uh, paranormal experiences and so forth. And um, that background, that knowledge of all of those things, I, I think, um, gave me kind of a, a unique perspective on what the nature of reality is. And so that was sort of the foundation for the book. I mean, that's why we're going to talk to you about yeah your book, uh, The Universe Explained, which is uh, available in all good bookstores. Um, uh, what inspired you to write the book? Yeah, like I said, I, I actually started off thinking about writing a book about relativity. Um, and this was in 2006. It was the 100-year anniversary of uh, Einstein's theory of special relativity. And a lot of people were taking pot shots at poor old Albert. Um, you know, relativity you know, may have some limitations, maybe things can travel faster than the speed of light, all those kinds of things. And it was something that just really fascinated me. But, you know, the more I dug into it, um, the more I realized there seemed to be kind of a bigger picture that um, just the, 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 the limitation of the speed of light, um, you know, and questioning that was one of many questions that people had or many anomalies in physics that aren't quite uh, fully explained. And so the more I kind of dug into it, the more I kind of, um, I guess, I made use of my sort of metaphysical interest and metaphysical background and thought more about the nature of reality and realized at some point that, gosh, you know, the way physicists say reality works is an awful lot like the way a computer program works, especially um, like a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, a video game. Mm -hmm. And but when I when I started thinking about that, I, I realized, wow, there's there's actually a lot of different categories of evidence that support that, and maybe that's what I should write a book about. So that's sort of the genesis of the book. Yeah, I was going to talk to you a bit. I mean, obviously, some of our listeners won't really know the kind of uh, the brief synopsis necessarily of all of the different kind of theories that you draw from in the book. I mean, one of the things I was interested in was maybe quickly going through stuff like uh, uh, quantum mechanics and string theory, this kind of thing, and uh, maybe looking at the way it, um, it, you kind of worked it into the book. Sure. Um, so, I mean, if you kind of look at the history of physics, even going back, the history of physics and science, even going back to kind of uh, you know, BC, uh, you know, Greek days, they believe that um, there were some fundamental building blocks of matter, which they called atoms, and, and the word atom comes from a, uh, had, has Greek roots. Um, the, the nature of the atom and the elements were more discovered, say, you know, in the 1800s, um, and then, uh, thanks to Ernest Rutherford and others, they started realizing that the atom was actually composed of different things. It was composed of these subatomic particles. Um, and as people started peering deeper and deeper into the atom, which was facilitated by, um, uh, by new uh, testing methods and new equipment and the uh, increase of technology, they were able to probe the atom at higher energies and therefore see things at smaller scales and um, you know, in higher energies, and they realized, you know, there's a whole mess of particles in there. I mean, there are particles that carry forces, and there's particles that, you know, that's, that interact in certain ways, and particles that don't interact with other particles, and, you know, pretty soon the, the list of particles became huge. Um, so a lot of physicists, you know, by nature have had a desire to simplify things, and there's been a uh, a push for a grand unified theory uh, that Einstein spent much of his life 
uh, pursuing, and many other physicists have, have uh, spent much of their time pursuing. And you know, the idea is basically let's try to come up with something that ties it all together, that makes sense out of all of these particles and all these energies and all these different forces that we're we're seeing. Um, and a lot of work was spent doing that. Um, and the current sort of prevailing de facto standard for a grand unified theory is string theory, which says that um, all subatomic particles are actually created by vibrating bits of string. Um, and I don't mean string in the sense of the kind that you pull around for your cat to follow. I, I mean, you know, subatomic string, little bit of matter that vibrates. So you can think of it kind of like a, um, uh, you know, uh, a guitar string or something like that that vibrates at different pitches. Well, that vibration, the frequency of the vibration, the, the you know the way that it vibrates determines the particle according to this theory. Um, so, that in order for the theory to work, it also involves uh, you know postulating the uh, the necessity of multiple dimensions, which is kind of a mind blowing concept to most people. Yeah. Um, so you've got multiple dimensions, you've got vibrating bits of string, and that's sort of where physics is today at a, you know, kind of at a layman's level. Um, but it's not all quite making sense. I mean, there's still a lot of things that, first of all, none of the string theory uh, predictions have uh, been proven. Um, there's no real evidence of string theory. It just is a, is a mathematical theory at this point that happens to kind of work. So in a way, it's a it's a theory that has been put together to explain observations up to this point, but there's no real tangible evidence of strings. And in order to get that, you need um, energies and particle accelerators that exceed our ability today, even with the, uh, the Linear Hadron Collider and, and at CERN is not high enough energy to really um, validate string theory. Uh, it'll be some time before that happens. Well, my view is that this process is just going to continue. That at some point, yeah. um, somebody's going to say, "Hey, you know, strings are probably composed of something else." And it's sort of like a Russian doll approach to physics, where um, you know, the more you probe something, you know, the deeper you get into it, the more you realize there are more and more levels in there. So the question is, at some point, does it reach an end? Is there some end to the number of levels? that there are as you get smaller and smaller. Um, and I suspect that the end may actually be just information. Um, it may just be information that defines what these particles are, because um, nobody really knows what matter is. Uh, if, if you, you know, you think about it, you can, you can feel hard things, you know, you can touch a, uh, a phone or, or a, a remote control or whatever, a pencil, whatever you have in front of you, it, it feels Hard, you say, hey, that's something tangible, that's matter, I, I understand what that is. But in reality, nobody really understands what creates matter. Um, there are theories about it, um, but none of those theories have been proven at this point. So um, my thought is that matter is really just a property of reality um, and that the real fundamental building blocks of that matter is just information. And that's exactly the way anything is modeled in a computer uh, is the same way. We can get into a lot more detail about how um, quantum mechanics kind of yeah. matches. Uh, I mean, that, that's, what, that's what fascinates me about your book, uh, is that like, um, 
the way that like um, you know science can't explain what is actually occurring, and yet you know if you if you look at the model that you're presenting across, it it actually does make a hell of a lot of sense. And then you know, in that in that respect, it is the universe solved. You know, you do actually um, looking at it through that model, it does actually appear to make a hell of a lot of sense. It does, and it actually uh, supports a lot of theories. I mean, if if you look into, say, thermodynamics, which is uh, the study of heat and entropy, um, you, you realize that that the, the some of the equations for thermodynamics um, basically say that information is energy, um, and in, and energy, according to Einstein, is matter. And so, you know, I'm, I'm talking at a very high level, of course, but you know, if you make that connection, you realize that matter can possibly just be information. Um, and especially if you think about it from a practical standpoint, um, our what we perceive in the world is based purely on the sensory stimulus, the sensory stimuli that we get through our senses in this process by our, uh, by our brain. Um, you've seen the movie The Matrix probably in 13th Floor and some of those those uh, Hollywood films that kind of probe reality, um, those are great movies. They, they're, they're movies that, that make you think about things. Um, I'm not saying that they're, you know, they're accurate, but in, in a sense, it's really hard to prove that they're not accurate because if all we experience is just what sensory stimuli we get that we're processing by whatever it is that processes this stuff. And most people will say it's your brain, but there's some evidence that it's a little more than that. Um, if that's all it is, well, then it can really be fooled pretty easily. And, um, you know, if, if you think about certain technologies like, uh, for example, nanotech, um, nanotech is, is a study of things at the 10 to minus 9th meters, you know, very, very small scale uh, things like probing atoms and being able to build things out of uh, atoms or uh, elements uh, one, one bit at a time, molecules one bit at a time. Um, you know, there, there's a concept called a nanobot, which is uh, the idea that you could create a effectively a microscopic robot that you couldn't see. It was so small that, that you can't see. That can fly, that can network with other microscopic robots um, and um, transfer information between them. And, and generate uh, any kind of sort of signal or, or light frequency that, that you want. Um, so we're, we're actually, you know, hurtling toward the realization of that concept now. Um, people are creating uh, robotic flies that are, that are the size of, say, uh, a centimeter in size. And Moore's Law is making them, you know, smaller by a factor of two almost every year or so. Um, eventually we're going to get to that point where they're basically invisible. Well, if you, you realize that we're, we're heading toward this, you could certainly imagine that there might be the ability to um, have, say, nanobots in your body that do certain things that, you know, maybe help, help your health, uh, maybe, you know, root out disease, maybe uh, intercept your sensory signals and transmit that information somewhere. And that somewhere could be a, you know, quote, cosmic computer that is actually processing everything that you perceive and then sending signals back to you um, to, to tell you what it is that you're perceiving. 
Um, this is not out, out of the realm of possibility. These kind of technologies are probably practical within our lifetime. So from a practi practicality standpoint, it's really possible to envision a scenario where you're being completely fooled into thinking that you're experiencing, experiencing a reality that you're not. It's all something that's possible in our most of our lifetimes. Uh, so if you can accept that, accept that that's a possibility, then the only question is, is it probable? Is it going on now? And there's a lot of sort of logical evidence, uh, some uh, evidence from the fields of philosophy as well as the fields of quantum mechanics and, and computation and so forth that says, hey, it's not just possible, it's actually likely. It's probable, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing I found really interesting in what you, in what you were just saying um, was the there is a there's a kind of shared assumption in science, isn't there that uh, that kind of uh, ignores the the central philosophical problem of reality. I always I found when I was doing philosophy, at least anyway. Uh, obviously, is like how do we prove we exist? That's always the uh, the big one, isn't it? In terms of uh, of looking at uh, yeah. any philosophical question, really. Um, obviously, within science, there's a, an assumption almost instantly in place that we do exist. I mean, did you explore that at all in your book? The, this kind of uh, you know what yeah. is reality and uh, Absolutely. And I think, you know, what, that's what science is about. Science is about um, a hypothesis and then, you know, developing experiments that prove or disprove that hypothesis and then fine tuning that hypothesis until you get closer and closer to, you know, something that is equivalent to a proof. Science doesn't deal in proofs. It, you know, math deals in proofs. Science deals in evidence and facts and things like that. So, so by its very nature, science can't touch the concept of uh, the you know the the uh, you know how do we know we exist kind of, of questions those those are in the realm of philosophy and I would say that my book is really more a philosophical book with a lot of scientific evidence to back it up hmm. um, and coupled with the sort of technology trends um, that also back up the you know probability of this of this theory. Uh, so yeah, definitely got got much very much into that those kind of philosophical ideas, and that's really a lot of the fun part of this as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, how, how much? Sorry, uh, it was just to kind of ask about the fact that we're living through a sort of information electronic age. Uh, that must have some kind of relevance in how we interpret reality. And I was wondering if you considered that as well about within your book of how uh, how your current environment might have had an impact on how you interpreted, uh, you know, the concept of we're living in a simulated reality when that kind of thing is very possible um, today. Yeah, really good question. Um, I don't delve too much into that in the book. Um, but it's one of those kind of things where you can kind of go down the rabbit hole when you start thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, what do we dream about? We, we dream about things that are somewhat real. Um, we don't dream about stuff that's, that's so far out there from a reality standpoint that we can't comprehend it. Um, mm -hmm. We don't build video games that aren't rooted in reality of some sort. You know, look at the games that are popular. They're sports games that just emulate football or they're, um, you know, they're fantasy games that take us back to, say, the, you know, the Middle Ages or something like that or some yeah, sort of yeah. fantasy realm. But it's all, you know, 
99% based in reality. There's nothing too far out there. And the reason is because we can't comprehend anything that's too far out there. It's, it's the same reason why it's hard to predict the future. People think, you know, a, a lot of the futurists will talk about what's going on in the next 50 years. When they start uh, discussing hundreds or, you know, hundreds of years, it's, it's more in very grandiose concepts and not, oh, somebody's going to invent this in 100 years. You know what I mean? Um, and, and the reason is because it's, it's hard for us to see beyond a certain horizon. We have, um, you know, our minds are just filled with experiences that are common everyday experiences. And we can be as imaginative as we possibly can. We can kind of push the envelope on those experiences and think, you know, what if the sky was red? What if, you know, gravity were different? What if this, what if that? Um, but but it's, can't it's always got far. to be grounded in reality, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that, you know, that necessity is sort of part of the book, too, because, um, and, and I thought about that a lot. I thought about, you know, am I really just writing something here because I have a, um, a software background, so I'm thinking about it from a software uh -huh. standpoint, you know what I mean? Um, and I struggled with that to some extent um, and came to the conclusion that it really doesn't matter. This is, you know, this is something that I think is interesting anyway. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to put it down in paper, but um, you know it, it's a good question, and you know a question that you have to kind of keep in context um, as you go. At the same time, you can think about it more from a uh, from the standpoint of if there is something out there that that has created a programmed reality for us, um, either they've done it in their own image, you know, kind of like the Bible says, God created man in His own image or whatever. Um, either they've done that or they've, you know, they've created a simulation that's comfortable for us in some way. And now we're used to that. So, um, you know, we can't go too much, uh, too much beyond it. You know, we're, we're, we're developing theories based on our experiences. We develop games based on our experiences. And those games, the video game trends, um, are heading right for this direction. So it's it's very much sort of a self-referential system. We're we're building the things that that may actually um, you know lead us to to question our own reality. Do you think there's going to be a a cap on technology, or are we are we going to hit just keep progressing technologically? I mean, I, I know that um, people like Alvin Toffler have written about. I don't know if you've read Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, or there's a, a very famous Robert Anton Wilson um, lecture called "The Acceleration of Knowledge," which basically he talks about how knowledge is doubling at an exponential rate, and so therefore technology is doubling with it. Um, but he didn't see a roof. Can you see a, a kind of a, a? I guess what I'm saying is. It, can you see a cap where we're actually going to progress so much that we're not going to be able to handle technology anymore? Almost, <laughs> and then if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, it does, does make sense. And uh, I actually wrote a paper on that, which is available on the, on my website. It's called uh, uh, "Infomania: The Singularity and Programmed Reality." Those three might be inverted, but mm. um, yeah, it's, it's about that that same idea. And uh, lot to talk about there. We can go down a couple of paths and let me see if I can try to frame it up. Um, you know, basically you're, you're talking about what a lot of people refer to as Moore's Law, which is this idea that technology uh, doubles um, every, every so often. And it, it's shown to be 
you know, remarkably consistent over the past 40 years in certain areas. Things like transistor density on a chip doubles every two years. Uh, processor speeds is more like 2.8 years. Uh, screen resolutions every four years. Uh, size of the internet is actually every five, 5.2 years, something like that. So that is an, a, an exponential progression. If something doubles every couple of years, then you know, it's that kind of thing where you go 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, you can see, and if you plot that, you can see that it just has this sort of exponential trend. Um, and that's, that has been going on uh, for, for quite a while. So people extrapolate that and say, all right, well, what's going to happen um, at some point in the future when we, you know, when our technology advances so much that we have created uh, artificial intelligence that's, that's smarter than us, um, and is able to assimilate all knowledge on the internet, all knowledge in the world. And you know what happens when we create these uh, brain-computer interfaces that um, enable us to think faster, to experience things differently, or whatever. Um, and gosh, you know when you when you extrapolate that out, you come up with this thought called the singularity. I don't remember who exactly exactly uh, coined the term, but uh, Ray Kurzweil and others uh, um, have, have uh, written a lot about it, uh, which is this, you know, coming sort of, and, and some people might say apocalyptic, others will say, um, you know, Nirvana-esque type of scenario where we merge with silicon and become a whole new, um, you know, intelligent race of species or whatever. And uh, maybe, you know, Frank Tipler wrote about the same kind of scenario in terms of populating the universe. Um, so, so, so that all implies that Moore's Law continues unabated into the future. Uh, then there are others who say, well, we're going to hit some limits at some point. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that people have been saying we're going to hit limits in transistor density since the 80s, and we always seem to move beyond it. When we reach a limit in one particular type of technology, yeah, we hit that limit, but then somebody comes up with a different technology going from, say, you know, bipolar junction to MOSFET junction, as an example, um, where now you're in a different technology, and, and again, we can continue that Moore's Law uh, progression. Um, so that has really happened. A lot of people have predicted some things, some slow, slowdowns that haven't occurred. However, I will say that I, I do agree that it is going to have to slow down at, at some reason. And this is sort of the crux of the paper that I referred to. Um, it's not because, well, in, in some technologies, you're getting to the point of uh, moving atoms around now. So we've got to make advances in physics to move uh, subatomic particles around or move strings around or whatever um, before we can you know, move too far in the direction of, of transistor density, for example. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, we're, we're going to hit some limits for other reasons. And one of those reasons is simply our ability to maintain this exponential pace. Um, I think that we're starting to see some flattening out of that. And you can see some evidence in terms of um, a, a couple of things. One, there was a, uh, there was a study done by Intel um, two studies done over the past 10 years that investigated how much time people spend processing interrupts during the day, and specifically email. And they found that 
um, and I don't remember the exact dates, but maybe it was 10 years ago or so, they found that people spent sort of 20% of their time processing email. And then six years later, they were spending 50% of their time processing email. Well, if you extrapolate that out, you realize that pretty soon, by the year 2012, 2013, they're going to spend 100% of their time processing email and not doing any real work. <laughs> and clearly, you know, that can't happen. So one of two things has to happen. Either you have to, um, we have a, a, a halt to this, or, or a slowdown to this progression of technology because we just can't assimilate it, um, or we have to be much smarter about how we process things. And I don't see a whole lot of evidence that we're, we're gonna be smarter. Um, the, <laughs> second area, the second area that, that I think is happening is that it's easy to, to see the advances in hardware technology, um, but it's not so easy to see the advances in terms of software. And artificial intelligence depends on software. So, you know, as an example, how, how fast did it take to boot your computer back in the 80s versus today? How fast did it take to, um, to save a uh, Word document or to uh, render a 3D image? That, those, those kind of attributes have not been increasing. Um, They've been slowing down, haven't they, technically? Because of the, uh, the kind of user interfaces have had to become kind of more complex to become more simple almost, haven't they? It's kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, and things like, um, you know, the, the operating system now is so bloated because mm. it's, it's so easy. Memory is so cheap and, and disk is so cheap that programmers don't have to be efficient anymore. So they don't bother. So, so there's all kinds of stuff in an operating system that you don't need or that, you know, there's gigabytes of, of, uh, of code and data that you may only use you know, tenth of a percent of the time. Um, so because of that, you know, that's that's preventing us from really moving at that Moore's law efficiency that, that hardware is moving at. And that's a critical thing to achieve this singularity. So I'm not saying that singularity will never occur, um, you know, just from a technology futurism perspective, we seem to be heading that direction. But, you know, I think that our ability to assimilate the, the rate of increase is, is going to slow it down. From a program reality perspective, that's a whole different story. I could I could make the argument that it will never occur because um, it can't. If it, if it occurs, it's sort of the end of the game. If you believe in this theory, we're not going to end the game. So we may reset. We may you know have an alternative uh, future at some point and never be never realize that we were ever talking about these kinds of things. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, I mean, on the show, we often cover, uh, it seems not an episode can go by where we don't cover things like uh, like ceremonial magic, Western, you know, esoteric traditions or this kind of thing. I mean, this almost sort of fits quite neatly into the, the kind of next section I was going to ask you about, really, which was about kind of uh, uh, the kind of ethogen kind of altered states of consciousness. I mean, could it technically be in some, you know, I suppose you could argue the case rather that. Uh, doing things like for example astral projection or uh, deep meditation where you have these kind of um, consciousness changing experiences uh, could this be in some ways uh, used as some kind of proof of a <laughs> of an alternate reality yeah absolutely um, there's a there's a section in the book um, on that topic exactly um, we're you know we in the west are kind of rooted in western traditions and we don't think a whole lot about you know the eastern views of things, but 
you know, if you read Eastern philosophies, um, they approach reality quite a bit different. They don't have, they don't necessarily have the idea that oh, everything has to be explained down to a rudimentary level for it to be true. Um, they accept some things, um, you know, about the nature of reality and the nature of being, uh, regardless of what science might say about it. And shamans have been doing this for years, and mystics, um, you know. You know, the the uh, enlightened ones in Buddhism and Hinduism and, and uh, those kinds of practices and religions um, have been experiencing alternative realities for years. Um, interestingly, those experiences that they've had can be achieved through a lot of different means. I mean, it can be achieved through um, ceremonial drumming or through fasting, or through introspection and, and meditation, or through ingesting of various uh, hallucinogenic substances from nature. Um, and, you know, the, regardless of the means to get there, you know, a lot of times they come up with some of the same kinds of experiences, which is that there is another realm, there's an astral realm, um, and in that realm, um, you are experiencing all things at the same time. Time disappears. You uh, have multiple lives, um, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of sort of common, you know, experiences and, and attributes to those things that that we could talk about. Um, that doesn't necessarily uh, prove the existence of a programmed reality. It it does kind of imply the existence of an alternative reality, um, but it does fit in nicely with the with the whole theory. And I think that even from a scientific standpoint, we're starting to get to the point where um, people are accepting that there are, um, you know, previously thought of as paranormal um, experiences that are unexplained by current science, scientific knowledge. Um, you know, there have been a lot of studies on out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences, which really show that, that people... Um, can have these uh, alternative reality experiences that can't be explained by purely the state of their their mind. There's something else going on there. There's another reality, and it really kind of lends a lot of support to the existence of a soul and to um, the existence of another, like you said, another realm. Um, and from a program reality standpoint, uh, that's that's all very very very, very possible, and it fits in neatly with the theory, um, because you could imagine, say, you know, taking, taking an analogy of a video game, you could imagine being in a video game where you, you're experiencing a reality that's, you know, put forth by the, um, by the program itself, and then because of a level that you reach, suddenly you're, you're experiencing something completely different, and it's all under control of, of, uh, of that program. I mean, uh, when you look at magic, for example, um, a lot of the time it's it's dealing with the manipulation of archetypes. It's the way I seem to look at it, and uh, the manipulation of uh, symbols. And one section I've noticed in your book is uh, you, you talk about coding. Uh, I'm talking. Uh, I'm assuming that's on a semiotic level, a kind of uh, language level, almost. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, take take for example. Um, uh, oh, I don't know. Say the the appearance of something that that. Some people see and other people don't see, you know, UFO or something cryptozoological or whatever, mm. um, you know, or the ability to make something disappear. Um, 
to one extent it would be it might be referred to as magic. Um, you know, I know that from a professional standpoint, magicians are very skeptical about any of this kind of stuff because you know they they're illusionists. They create um, you know through their physical tricks they create an illusion. Um, and nobody really makes things disappear, with the exception of people like Yuri Geller, who, who claimed to be able to bend spoons and things like that. But you know, if you talk about magic more from the standpoint of the sort of um, you know non-professional aspect of it, which is you know, say the ability to make something disappear or or something appear differently to one person versus another person, um, it's perfectly explained by coding. Um, take take a Hypnosis, for example, um, there's a there's a book that I read called uh, the holographic universe by Michael Talbot, which is really, really, you know, kind of a, an interesting and mind expanding um, read. And in it, he describes um, a, a party that he was at and he witnessed um, a friend who was hypnotizing somebody. And he, he basically told them that. You know, when I bring you out of this trance, you're not going to be able to see your daughter. And when he came out of the trance, um, his daughter was standing right in front of him, and he was like looking right through her, he didn't see her at all. So the hypnotist held a watch, and these were people who didn't know each other, certainly didn't, you know, didn't, uh, uh, you know, examine the watch ahead of time or anything like that. Mm. Um, he held his watch against the the small of her back, and asked the subject to read the inscription on the watch. And he leaned forward and read it, you know, looking through the girl. So um, it's like a patch in the program kind of idea. Right. So, so what explains that? Um, you know, from a coding standpoint, it's really easy to explain that. You know, it's easy to say, when this person is hypnotized, um, you know, here's what they can experience and they don't see that that person in front of them that everybody else sees that's you know you're you're receiving sensory input and you're you're sending experiences back into the brain if that's what's really going on that explains that perfectly um the same with say you know ufo sightings or out-of-body experiences or any of these kind of um, paranormal anomalies perfectly explained by you know coding uh, coding that into the reality and you know the way I think of it is people you know if this is really true um, people have sort of they have certain attributes they have you know strength uh, life force um, you know ability to uh, experience alternative realities might be an attribute and it's all kind of probability so at certain times you know, certain things are going to happen in life or in, in your world that are unexplained. Perfectly explained by the programmed model, but to you, um, you know, very much unexplained. But it doesn't take much to go through the web and, and find zillions of examples of this kind of thing. And even if you discount 90% of them, you're still left mm -hmm. with an awful lot of experiences that have no conventional explanation. One thing that I think we should maybe cover uh, in the show is uh, you uh, give uh, five examples of evidence of uh, program reality. And I was wondering if we could go through those. Uh, I think the first one's our discrete world. Yeah, sure. That, and that's the big one. That was the one that, um, that really kind of triggered my uh, interest in writing this book. And that, that is that um, 
in physics, when you, you when you talk about quantum physics, um, which is the prevailing theory, um, as the theory goes, when you get into smaller and smaller dimensions or smaller and smaller scales, you get to a discrete level. Um, so, you know, according to the theory, when you get down to 10 to the minus 36 meters, space is actually quantized. So you look at things in the room, you look at your computer screen or, or something on the wall or whatever, you see a sort of a continuity of space because you're seeing it at a very macroscopic level. Um, just like you, the way you see motion on a television screen. Well, television is all digital today. It's all bits. But, but it looks like motion when you see somebody running or, or a car driving. Um, same, it is, same, same way when you experience reality. It looks very continuous and very smooth. But when you get down to that quantum level, that 10 to the minus 36 level, physicists say, actually nothing exists in between two points in space. The points being separated by the so-called Planck length, which is 1.6 times 10 to the minus 36 meters. Nothing exists between those two points. And that and that's the same and that's the same for time as well, isn't it? The same same for time. That's um, the, see, that's that's what fascinates me was about your book particularly was that whole concept of the universe having a clocking speed like it was a a processor, a CPU, you know, running exactly. at a specific speed. Yeah, um, it, it's, I, it's. I think it's a really, you know, interesting analogy. I mean, it's clearly a very high speed, you know, if indeed it is yeah. that at that speed. But you know, the the best minds today have come up with that as a paradigm. You know, from all the evidence that that's how reality is. It's it's states of the universe that are clocked at ten to the minus forty third seconds, and nothing happens in between those periods of time, and nothing happens in between those points in space. And that's so when, exactly, exactly the way a computer program works. So when someone says we'll be back in a jiffy, that's not technically <laughs> correct. Exactly. <laughs> nothing can happen between two jiffies. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that's really, you know, like the first evidence. And, and you know, so, so what? So, so reality appears to be very similar to the way a computer works. What does that mean? Well, why does a computer work that way? And the, and the reason is because of limitation of resources. If you want infinite resolution, you have to have an infinite amount of memory and an infinite amount of disk, which is an infinite cost. And it's impossible you know, to reach infinity. So there's a practical reason why you always limit resolutions of things in computer models and so forth. Um, so I can't think of any other reason why our universe would also be so limited other than the fact that it's generated by a, a computational mechanism. Otherwise, why not make it continuous? But how about the actual, I mean, in order to find this kind of information out, we must have some kind of uh, apparatus in place or, uh, uh, you know, some kind of system where we record that information. Could that be the limits of our technology in order to record the, the fact that nothing does occur between two jiffies? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, that's one other thing I'd say about this is that that appears to be the sort of limit to the structure of space and time according to quantum physics. But it isn't necessarily the limit of our reality because it's actually, you know, we're able to probe at sort of the 10 to minus 36 meters uh, size where we will see things. 
at you know or infer things at that um, level, which is 20 orders of magnitude different from this Planck level. So you know if you think uh, again about the analogy with a program, you don't need to model a tree in a in a virtual reality game to a really high resolution that's way beyond the resolution needed for you to perceive it as a continuous tree. You only need to model it just to the level of your ability to perceive it. You know what I mean? So, so my thinking is, you know, perhaps the universe is just modeled at a higher level than this, you know, quantum mechanical level. That's again, you know, a theor theoretical minimum, but it could actually be modeled at a higher level. And uh, there's actually a study that was done for a completely different purpose. Uh, there's a gravitational wave detector in Germany that is um, it's designed to, to detect gravity waves from distant cosmological events like supernovas or black hole collisions or whatever. Um, and that uh, laboratory is experiencing uh, noise in their results that appear to be like the graininess of reality. And there are some people, including scientists, Craig Hogan of uh, Fermilab uh, Center for Particle Astrophysics, thinks that that instrumentation has actually reached the limits of space-time resolution, and it might be proof, you know, he calls it living in a hologram. Um, I would call it, you know, looking at a programmed reality. This is the GEO, uh, uh, what, what is it again? GEO 600, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fact, I, read I, think, some, I read something about that, yeah. I think you might have even sent me the link to it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's, a, it's really a fascinating idea. I don't know that that is really going to, you know, you know validate this, but w what I'm saying is that it, it could be validated that we live in a programmed reality at a much higher level than the quantum mechanical level. Right. However, think about this, though. If, if that is the case... Wouldn't you think that the programmers, whoever they may be, would, you know, want us to always think we're living in a real reality? Therefore, might they put a patch in that in increases the reality of or the resolution of our reality? So wouldn't be wouldn't surprise me that we develop equipment that can actually detect it. And then, boom, the, the effect either goes away or. And an alternative explanation is given for it and discovered, and it's going to take some some further years to, you know, probe even deeper. It's kind of like let's say you have a, a EverQuest or a World of Warcraft or something like that, and two three years later after it's uh, um, after it's launched, uh, resolutions of screens and and so forth have have gone have increased to the point where the game starts looking old well release a patch or a new version of the game that that now it you know matches current technology is, is done all the time interesting so the, the next uh piece of evidence you cite in is here is the simulation timeline i was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that sure um and this one is uh you know really comes from more of a um, a logical point of view or, or a philosophical point of view. Uh, Nick Bostrom uh, from, uh, uh, I think it's Cambridge University or Oxford, um, a philosopher there in the, uh, or, uh, in the philosophy department. He, he's uh, come up with this argument and some others have as well, um, you know, previous to him, similar kinds of arguments. And basically it, it, it looks at it like this. Um, if you think about it from a logical standpoint, we are 
our technology is, is heading in the direction where we're going to create reality simulations. We already do it. Um, we do it vir via virtual reality programs and video games and things like that. And people love it. So, you know, clearly it's, we're not quite to the point where, um, where a simulation is indistinguishable from reality. You can always tell, you know, even if you had, say, wraparound goggles on or whatever, um, you can always tell that it's not quite real, but it's getting pretty close. You know, you, you walk into a electronic superstore and, and, and look at a uh, soccer or football game on TV, um, you, you can't tell whether it's a, a game or whether it's, you know, it's the real thing until you, you get up close. So we're getting to the point where we can generate these simulations that look very real. And what these uh, philosophers are saying is that we're going to get to that point at some point. It's just a matter of time before uh, through nanotech or through other means, brain-computer interface uh, mechanisms, we're able to create simulations that are virtually indistinguishable from reality. Um, what they, you know, at that point, that's they call that a post-human uh, stage. When we get to that point, um, you know, we the question is, you know, how do we know that we haven't already gotten to the point? And so there are three options. One. Either we never get to that point because we consciously decide not to, um, and I, I can throw that option out, you know, automatically. You know, when have we ever not pursued something um, because we think that the uh, outcome might be might have some kind of nefarious uh, aspects to it? You know, we pursued nuclear uh, nuclear energy. We've pursued. Uh, nanotechnology, we pursued all kinds of cloning, all kinds of things that um, you know a lot of people have, have objected to. So we're going to keep on pursuing this. The second scenario is that we just destroy ourselves before we get to the point where we can be post-human and generate these simulations. Um, and the third possibility is that we do get to that point, and if we do, what are the odds that we're not in one now is actually very, very small. Because if you think about it, it's going to take 20 years to get to the point where we can run these simulations. We're going to run, they call them ancestor simulations. We're going to run millions and millions of them. And so what are the odds that we're not in one of those millions of simulations versus the one, you know, quote, reality that we think we're in? The odds are actually pretty small that we're not in a simulation. If you look at it from that Kind of logical standpoint so it's a you know it's a logic argument for uh for evidence for a programmed reality i mean uh, obviously there's a there's a couple of others the fine-tuned universe and the anom anomalies revisited they, these are two things i was interested in discussing as well i guess starting with the fine-tuned universe sure um and there uh this has a lot to do with the way our universe seems to be perfectly tuned not just for life um, and certainly there's a lot of kind of fine-tuning for life that has occurred, but even for its existence, um, the existence of matter and the existence of the universe itself, um, cosmologists have, have calculated that if the expansion rate of the early universe, you know, again, assuming that the universe was created in a Big Bang type scenario, um, if that expansion rate in the first, you know, microseconds, nanoseconds of um, of the creation of the universe was off by as little as one part in a billion 
you know, one followed by nine zeros in either direction, it would have caused the universe to immediately collapse or to fly apart so fast that stars would never have formed at all. Um, so that sounds like perfect tuning. Um, differences between ratios of um, electric field strength to gravitational field strength, ratios of protons to electron masses, strengths of nuclear forces, all these kind of things are just so perfectly tuned for, for a universe to even exist at all. Um, the argument that scientists have come up with to explain this to me is just a you know it's it's a, it's a mind trip um, and the argument is called the anthropic principle which says that well it's because you know zillions and zillions of universes are actually being created all the time some of them have uh, <laughs> the wrong ratios and some of them have the right ratios and you know, ours just happens to be the one that we can live in, but it has to be because we're in it. But, but it implies that there must be zillions of others out there that are wrong. Um, so, you know, I, I invoke the old Occam's razor here and say, you know, how much sense does it make that zillions and zillions, and I know that the, the zillion is not a word, but uh, it's just just a, a concept because the number is so astronomically large um, that you know I'm not sure anybody can even calculate it we can, can't even comprehend it but so zillions and zillions of universes are created that are all flawed except for you know a couple here and there that are just absolutely perfect and you know we happen to be living those how likely is that scenario versus the scenario of well somebody designed it for us to live in <laughs> um, to me, it's just that's just more logical. You're the first scientist uh, <laughs> that's ever kind of come up with a uh, argument for intelligent design. I think that's. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm sure all the, the scientists are out there. You know, anybody who, who would be listening <laughs> would be saying he's not a scientist; he's an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a fair point because to be completely um, cynical about the whole idea of some kind of purpose behind it all is to take a leap of faith in itself, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. No matter how you cut it, you're taking a leap of faith. Taking a leap of faith that that the anthropic principle is real and that the parallel universe theory is real and there's no strong evidence for it. Um, or you're taking a leap of faith that it's some intelligent design. Either way, or, it's a leap of faith. Or you don't know. <laughs> yeah, or you just don't know. <laughs> And then you mentioned uh, the anomalies, um, and, and we touched on those a little bit. Um, you know, things like coincidences and uh, sort of specter of the acceleration and the singularity, and um, you know, those are those are things that are all perfectly explained by the programmable reality model. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that some of them have explanations outside of programmed reality, they, they may have, um, you know, explanations of, you know, black ops programs or, uh, you know, statistical coincidences and things like that. Um, but there's no all encompassing theory that explains all of those anomalies. Mm. Um, so you either have to say, Hey, none of those anomalies really exist, or there are so many, you know, weird explanations that um, you know, all of those strange explanations have to exist, or there's one encompassing theory that explains all of them. And again, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
And these, some of these anomalies are not just sort of metaphysical, paranormal type things. It's uh, anomalies in the field of science as well. Um, there's a, an effect called the um, observer effect or the expectation effect. Um, different scientific laboratories around the world get different results um, on the same experiment, depending on what their personal expectations are for the outcome of those results. That's an anomaly in of itself, and mm. it's a scientific one. That's a bit but like um, Freud uh, famously changed the way we uh, thought about science, didn't he, by saying that um, scientists, if you consider that every scientific project that's conducted will contain the neurosis of the uh, person conducting the scientific experiment. It changes the way we look at it. Does that make sense? That kind of fits into what you were just Absolutely. saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah it's a, Absolutely. And it's, and it's, um, you know, there, there's sort of the tangible impact of that, which is, um, you know, oh, I, I uh, you know, had this sort of expectation. So I'm going to tend to believe this person's result, or I'm going to write it down this way or whatever. And science is all about trying to remove those those kinds of effects from the experiments so double blind experiments and you know scientific rigor is applied to experiment even when you do that expectations seem to have an effect which kind of goes back to this quantum mechanical idea that nothing really exists until you observe it um, and that you know the act of observation has an impact on the outcome um, but nobody really understands why and uh, you know again I think that programmed reality can explain why because the program itself is receiving all of that intent and all of that expectation that everybody has and it and it may be programmed to say you know we're going to have a tendency to show these kinds of outcomes when people believe them it's a you know sort of a positive affirmation it might be necessary if you think about it from a sort of a feedback standpoint it might be necessary to have that for the world to continue progressing otherwise it may become chaotic. It may be an unstable system if you have a tendency to go against your expectations. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, interesting. So I guess the question to ask is: I mean, this is like obviously we can't prove or anything. I mean, we're talking about the uh, you know the the evidence of a program reality and the kind of the real, I guess, the realisticness of a program reality. Who <laughs> who would who's pulling the strings who's who's the them in this case would you would you say would, would you say maybe it's ourselves or you know yeah that's that's really a uh, you know that's sort of the million dollar question and yeah. it's, I, I i kind of explore some of the possibilities a little bit in the book and the book is more about the evidence than it is about um you know trying to figure that out so maybe that's yeah. that's for a sequel but you know we can certainly <laughs> say that we can probably rule a couple things out um you know you can certainly say that um, it could be us in the future. It could be sort of an Earth company in the future. Hmm. Uh, it could be an artificial intelligence. It could be biological extraterrestrials, um, or it could be quote gods, which you know maybe you know something something different that we just can't even comprehend. Um, I actually, <laughs> yeah, I actually kind of. You know, I think that the AI and the the uh, biological ETs makes a little bit more sense. Um, you know, you know, I, I, I often think about you know people. Uh, SETI looking for extraterrestrial intelligence is has a very sort of narrow success window. You know, they're really looking for other intelligences that have, happen to be exactly at the same level of technology as us. They're using radio waves. 
you know, how long are we going to use radio waves? I mean, in the United States, we just stopped um, generating um, analog TV signals. Uh, everything's, everything is digital now and, and carried either satellite or cable. Um, so, you know, there's probably a window of, say, 100 years when our technology is making full use of radio waves that emanate into space. Um, what's the likelihood that, A, another uh, uh, civilization out there came across that te technology and, you know, used it for any long enough period of time for us to intercept um, is really, really small when, when you think about it. So, you know, I, I tend to think that if there is other life out there and, you know, there's no reason not to suspect that there, there is, isn't, um, they could be so far advanced from us that it was kind of like what we were talking about before. You can, you can imagine 50 years into the future, you can imagine those kind of technologies. You can't imagine anything beyond that. Um, you know, these guys could be so far advanced that they can um, exceed the speed of light. They can, you know, create scenarios for whoever they want to, um, you know, full universe simulations kinds of things. I mean, it, it all it's all within the realm of probability when you kind of get 50, 100, 500 years out in technology from where we are, which is very likely that there's other um, intelligences out there that are way beyond that. Um, so, so I, I mean, that, that kind of makes some sense to me. Mm. No proof for it, but it, it just kind of feels right. I think one of the chapters that really interested me in your book was the um, the dummy's guide to how to build a universe. I mean, how, <laughs> how would you go about building your own universe? Um, yeah, and it's really just from a software perspective. So um, it's a you know pseudo code for creating a universe and basically it just says that um, you know the the elements of the program have to be collect all um, intent from all you know sentient entities um, and then create a new state of the universe as a result of that intent and the previous state and then just keep on doing that at the Planck frequency or at whatever frequency makes it appear uh, continuous. So, you know, obviously it's a technology that, you know, to create the kind of simulation that we might be living in um, is beyond our grasp right now. We could do it on a small scale, um, and that's what um, gaming companies do every day. They're creating that just that kind of thing. Um, the intent that they're receiving from their players have, has to do with sort of the player positions and um, you know, and, and actions that they perform and things like that, as opposed to their conscious thought process. Um, if somebody's tapping into everybody's thought process, then they can create, you know, a much more sophisticated reality. Yeah. And one thing I was going to ask you, actually, I guess it's kind of an aside to this really is, uh, uh, I mean, as someone that looks at this kind of thing, I imagine you look at, uh, stuff like virtual reality machines and, uh, these, these kind of, uh, technologies, um, <clears throat> I mean, I remember back in like the early '90s, I think it was that they tried to kind of commercialize uh, virtual reality machines, and uh, you could go to sort of video arcades, and they'd have uh, you know these great big things where you could you'd stand in a kind of uh, I don't really know what to call it, really like a kind of space, and you'd have these kind of goggles on. Yeah. Uh, what 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 happened to that technology? Because that seemed to be quite an exciting new kind of um, 
uh you know form of entertainment i suppose back in the 90s and then it's just sort of vanished you, you, I, don't, I, I very rarely see anything you know about it i mean right what's actually going yeah, on it with was, that? <laughs> it was a technology before its time mm. um and, and the reason was it was the first time that you you had the technology to do those kinds of things but it was done at such a rudimentary level that people's imaginations immediately went to hey i want to create a, a whole reality type thing that you know, looks real and, and is, uh, you know, looks looks like life or, you know, maybe a fantasy world or something like that. And they quickly realized that, okay, you know, that the state of the sensory, um, that the haptic devices, the gloves and the goggles and the things that you wear, the state of the technology there just completely limits you from doing much more than anything really rudimentary at that point. And people very quickly got bored with the capabilities that there were at the time. So... So it's like technology reared its its head. Um, here it is, but there wasn't enough. Um, you know, there wasn't enough uh, uh, CPU speed um, and and software capability at the time to really take advantage of it. So I, I think it'll come back, um, and it'll certainly come back in uh, ten years or so. And it's coming back to some extent um, now. I mean, you're seeing, uh, you know, things like some of the uh, console games, you know, the Wii games where people interact with the, the games is, you know, is a, is a step in, in that direction. Um, uh, and there are also some experiments that are being done with gaming companies uh, in Japan and, and elsewhere uh, where they uh, make some decisions based on some thought patterns that you have. They attach uh, electrodes to your head, you wear these little helmets and and stuff and, and it's again very rudimentary because um, you know it you know we haven't fine-tuned that technology yet however it actually does work and, and there are people who can control things through the power of thought only now um, with a sufficient you know sufficiently advanced um, helmet and electrodes attached to their their scalps um, they can actually control things through through thought today, mm. um, but again, it's still rudimentary. And it, it, Moore's law is going to, I think, you know, allow that to become much more sophisticated over the next five to ten years. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, man. I've really, uh, really enjoyed this. Uh, we're definitely going to have to get you back on. <laughs> I think in a few weeks. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. Thanks, thank Jim. you. Well, thanks it's, a lot. It's good speaking to you. Hello, it's me, Daddy Tank, with more MySpace Heroes.
this session. DJ loves dust. It's fun to smoke dust. The Zikana machete and assorted flavour. Under embellished with Pilfal and Ars Dada with Butcher. The Hemian, the Omen, because you're the devils, you're the demons, and you know that. Your music, rock and roll, is a satanic, is a satanic music. When they say you turn around, you make the music go back, and you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. You make the music go back, you make the music go back, you make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. Today's message is a solemn warning to all young people who listen to rock and roll and heavy metal music. Satan knows he only has a short time to deceive the earth, so he's using music as his antichrist tool to deceive the masses. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. And I'm finally beginning to unravel a bizarre and fiendish plot designed by Satan's antichrist system to corrupt pervert and ultimately enslave the youth of this generation. Another one bites the dust. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. Satan's satanic takeover of our youth through rock music. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. All rock music is dangerous. I want to tell you that today, even some of the mellow stuff that doesn't sound like it has anything in it that could be deceptive or even misleading. I started asking God, can you show me how he's doing it? I wanted to have proof positive. Now, Queen has a song called Another One Bites the Dust. We have the same reaction the first service. The kids went, oh no, not Queen. Not Another One Bites the Dust. Another One Bites the Dust. All rock music is dangerous. Another One Bites the Dust. I want you to know today that Satan has planted his lyrics in the music, and some of it is subliminal. If that means it's down at low decibel levels where you wouldn't hear it audibly as you play the music at the speed that you, or the high. Uh, sound levels that you would regularly play it. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. Satan has planted his lyrics in the music. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. There's another message going on below the surface. This is called subliminal programming. You make the music go back, you hear Satan speaking. But I want to say something. I don't believe that this particular masking was intentional. I think that this is something that Satan himself put into the music. Let's play it forwards. Another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. Another one bust the dust, ow! Another one bust the dust, hey, hey! Another one bust the dust, hey! Okay, I'm gonna play that for you backwards. It's the next cassette. We'll have to put a new cassette in. And on this next cassette, I want you to hear the secret message. It's over and over and over. It says, it's fun to smoke marijuana. It's fun to smoke marijuana. It's fun to smoke marijuana. You listen to it and tell me if it's not there. Let's play that. secret message was <laughs> it's fun to smoke marijuana it's fun to smoke marijuana it's fun to smoke marijuana now I'm gonna play that backwards for you once more for those of you that are skeptics
again to daddy tank for uh, an excellent myspace heroes um always good and if you want to hear more of me and daddy tank you can uh, check us out on our new show behind closed doors uh, which is uh, currently being shoved down this in our feed so you have little choice if you subscribed but to listen um we'll uh, be keeping those going down the feed for a while and if people complain we'll take them off and just have the, an exclusive feed for it but uh, that's meant for the guys, like I said earlier, at rlive.co.uk, which is rlve.co.uk. They're nice people that host our site and design it and do all the cool stuff for us. But anyway, um, Jim Elvidge, what did you think of the interview, Mort? Um, I could have spoke to him all night, to be fair. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, like I've told you before, I'm really kind of new to this whole podcasting thing. And... I just kind of felt really ease speaking to him. I just I could have really easily just asked him millions of questions all night. He was just you know that kind of responsive and you know knowledgeable about his subject. It was really interesting. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of the Rushkoff interview where like, yeah. you, know, you kind of listen back to it and uh, you know you, you, you kind of get new information each time you listen to the interview. It's really uh, yeah. I, I like people where you can just get completely absorbed in a conversation. You know. Yeah. No, so um, I found uh, what particular kind of areas of the, of the interview did you find of most interest? I suppose I, I'm fascinated by that whole kind of Planklin sort of thing that he talks about, where you know the the universe has got like a clock and speed, mm. you know that, yeah. that kind yeah. of um, 
you know, it's like a, a sort of processing speed or CPU speed or something like that. I, I find it fascinating that, you know, I, I'd like to get into more of that thing with them and find out, you know, um, if it's just down to our, how well our instruments detect these things or if it's actual down to, you know, exact laws. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely have to have him back on in, in a few weeks' time, I think, just because... Uh... I had like just from I mean like we were saying just from looking at the contents of his book you can kind of draw a billion questions out of it and uh, yeah sure yeah yep. <laughs> I find that this kind of subject fascinating like I said before you know uh, I think I reviewed his book about a couple of well I don't know maybe about a, a year ago and um, you know when I said that like it it was up there in my estimations with Robert Ant Wilson's Prometheus Rising it really is as far as I'm concerned it's a, it's a fascinating book it's really it's really enjoyable and it really engages you and you, you and you know you want to go out and try some of the you know thought experiments that are in there mm. yeah I mean it's like when we're talking when we're talking to uh, Richard Metzer about the kind of uh, the new generation as it were of um, these kind of writers I've definitely put Elbridge up there with them mm. Sure, definitely. Yeah, he's interesting. Anyway, so if you want to check out more of Mort, uh, you can get catch him on his website at media-underground.net, is it? Is it all that's it, yep, yep, that's one. Uh, of course, you can come to our site at sittingnow.co.uk or .com. Um, and if people want to get in contact with you, Mort, how, do, how would they do that? Um, just Mort at media-underground.net. And if you want to get me, it's ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Now, hopefully, we've, hopefully, I say this because... Uh, things never go smoothly with this podcast <laughs> hopefully we'll be back next week with uh, reverend billy from the church of stop shopping um <laughs> if not i'm sure we'll have someone equally as cool but uh yeah uh if you you know want to leave a comment about the show feel free to post on the uh in, in on the forum on sittingnow.co.uk or as most people seem to do just in the actual <laughs> in the in the uh the episode post we do have a forum people you can use that you know <laughs> it's hard isn't it people don't like forums these days they just like uh, I prefer them personally but I don't know oh well <laughs> anyway we'll see you next week and thanks for listening uh, see you next time